You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode number 83. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss data and what to do with it after it's been archived. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing, Chris? Not too bad, not too bad. We're recording this the day after the 4th of July, and um, it's pretty dry out here in Reno. And from what I heard, there were only like six house fires yesterday, so that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do anything special for the 4th? Not really, because we, uh, well, we walked around a bit, and the Reno Philharmonic was playing uh, at a park just a couple blocks from us, so we went down and listened to them for a while. That was really cool. They always play like poppy tunes and stuff on days like today. Um, and then there's a fireworks uh display that happens what they play music to um but we can't see that from where we live we have to walk down there but what we Uh can see is the other fireworks that happen in reno right from our balcony so we went and listened to them for a while and then came back before the fireworks started um uh that we can see right from our balcony and of course you know we were in our pajamas by then nice and relaxed sitting on the balcony drinking a glass of wine (laughs) watching fireworks which was way way better it was, yeah, it was way better than fighting the crowds and bringing a lawn chair and all this stuff. It was just like, come on. So, yeah, it wasn't too bad. How about you? Uh, we were up in Vermont um, visiting some friends. We'd uh, I dumped off my son at uh, his best friend's summer place a few days back. And so we went up for the night to have a cookout and watch the, uh, watch the fireworks with them and hang out with them for the night. And then we drove back today. So it was just a nice mini vacation that we had up in the Green Mountains. Nice, nice. Really beautiful up there. Well, while you were up there, I'm sure you had a discussion with your friends about the usability of archived data in archaeology. So, I'm uh, curious. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, you know why? Because no one has that conversation. That's that's the that's the actual answer to this. So, well, why don't um, you and I have this conversation? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I'm kind of glad that. Um, so, what, let me before I get too far here, uh, let me bring up what we're talking about here. So we're talking about an article written by Sarah Wishard Kanza and Eric C. Kanza to give their full names, but Sarah and Eric Kanza. And it's called Data Beyond the Archive in Digital Archaeology. And it's actually just a really short four-page article that's an introduction to this special issue of um, the Society for American Archaeology's Advances in Archaeological Practice magazine for May of 2018. And so we're, we're discussing the summary article because rather than discuss all the articles briefly, we can discuss the summary article because it talks about the entire issue and kind of brings up all the major issues, which is really what we want to talk about. So we'll, we'll break down the article a little bit, but then we'll give our thoughts on, on what we think about this. Um, but just uh, a little bit more information here, just so you can know where this is coming from. And I wish I hadn't been running a booth during this conference or that I would have probably gone to this session, but this is mostly the result of a session at the 2017 SAA meetings in Vancouver, Canada, that was dealing with this very topic. And the essentially the topic is not only data itself, but the usability of data that's already been archived. So you finished your project, your data's in a repository somewhere, whether it's your own company servers, the BLM, um, you know, somewhere, TDAR, and it, these guys are all academics, so they're talking TDAR, Open Context, the Archaeology Data Service, um, things like that. Your, your data is there somewhere. Who's using it? Who can use it? Is it even usable? And that's the basics of this entire article, um, is uh, this entire issue, I should say, is, is this archive data 
valuable? Is it useful? And if it's not, how can we fix that? And uh, and what are the issues surrounding that? And, and if, if it is usable and people aren't using it, well, how can we encourage people to use it? So we're going to talk about all of that um, here. If you want to check out the article, um, I'll link to SAA Advances. Um, I'm not going to put the article in the show notes because they might get mad about that because they do have it behind a paywall. So, mm-hmm. um, But I will link to where you can get it if you're an SAA member, or I'm not sure if you can buy it uh, somehow if you're not a member. But either way, this link will take you to a resource where you can actually see the article. But we're going to talk about the whole thing right now, so no worries. Paul, I, I kind of summarized this for you, um, for the for the audience. What are your initial thoughts on the usability of archived data? <laughs> yeah, well, here we are summarizing the summary, so that strikes me as a little funny. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, again, uh, Sarah and Eric have been doing, you know, they've been working for well, the, the, the people behind Open Context. And so they've been thinking very deeply and implementing for quite a while uh, strategies for uh, for collecting and disseminating archaeological data of various forms. And, uh, and they, you know, the two of them together know more about this than I could ever hope to know. So it's nice that they have the summary of the other articles in this uh, in this issue, uh, which themselves came, like you said, out of this uh, out of this discussion at the previous SAAs, um, they're just you know they they dance through uh, kind of like a, a discussant after a uh, after a conference session, right? They they go through and highlight certain points that people brought up, certain themes that uh, that kind of recur through the different articles, uh, and a lot of them have to do what they really focus on most closely i guess is uh they're calling data reuse and so the, the the impression i was getting from the way that they're coming at it is that that you know between uh, ads and uh and tdar and open context that we have a number of different ways of depositing archaeological data but that what where it's really falling down is uh, is data reuse, and that's the term that they mm-hmm. were using in this article quite a bit. Um, I that that actually struck me a little funny, data reuse, because um, I don't know that I've ever thought of it in that particular wording. I, I don't know um, right why why the re struck out and <laughs> struck struck me as funny, <laughs> but but that's what they run with, and so uh, you know, so it's it's jumping around between the different uh, the different problems people are having with data reuse. And uh, and I do think that it cuts at some deeper issues that we have with archaeology because, you know, we're, we're a 100, 150-year-old field um, and we have some very ingrained practices. And uh, and they're at the forefront of trying to, to expand what our practices are and improve them and modernize them in a bunch of ways. And there's a certain amount of resistance within the field, certainly within academic archaeology. And that's where most of these uh, writers, I think, are coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would guess also in CRM um, to, to grabbing hold of, uh, of these new techniques and, and using them most effectively. And again, like I said, they, uh, they seem to be f- comfortable with depositing data and much less comfortable with what people are doing or not doing with regards to getting data back out of these repositories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, that's the big thing right there, especially with like CRM reports and stuff like that. You know, we, we go and pull, um, pull reports all the time when we're doing research for a project or we pull site records or something like that. But these reports and these site records are written using data, raw data that was collected in the field. And unless you dig just a little bit deeper, 
you're probably not going to use that, find that raw data. Um, and one of the things, you know, like if you go to a, a BLM records office, I mean, my God, the first thing you do when you get in there is leave. Like, that's what you want to do because it's like hot, it's stuffy. It's probably not in a good location. You know, the, the BLM office itself is key card access to get into. And then like two people in the building have access to the room where the side files are kept. And it's usually like a locked, you know, cabinet that everything is in and it's just ridiculous. So anyway, um, you're, you're not lingering in there to pull a bunch of things. And so you're making photocopies of or scans of, you know, report first pages and then maybe flipping through to see if there's anything you can use. And then there might be a disc, like a disc. I've never seen anybody take that, that CD, pop it into their computer and pull the data off it. I've never done it, you know? So we're, we're actually not using the data from these things. We're using the analysis and the conclusions from them analyzing the data. When in reality, what this is talking about is if we had better access to the actual raw data, we might be able to do other things with that, look at it in a different way, add it to our own data set and create a bigger data set and then do different things with it. And I think that's the, the major issue in this, um, in this, in this article, in this entire, in this entire issue. Yeah. And I can't comment on how the BLM stores their data, but, uh, this notion of having access to the raw data is something that, uh, that the authors seem to be saying, Hey, uh, you already do. Why are you not using it? (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, you know it scratches a lot of itches that I've got reading through this, mm-hmm. but um, but makes me really want to dig in a little more deeply. Uh, no pun intended. No archaeological puns <laughs> there intended uh, to try to figure out what, why exactly. You know, I've, I'm going to have to really spend some time with the rest of the articles in, in this mm-hmm. uh, in this issue to try to see where things seem to break down. I mean, a lot of it I think is uh, is kind of conservatism in the field. Uh, I don't mean that mm-hmm. politically. I mean that, uh, you know, in, in what our practices are. Like I said, you know, you might have access to the report and that's where you go. That's where you look. Um, actually, here, I'll give you a very concrete example. So okay. 20 years ago, I did my MA. I did it on um, on the Royal Tomb architecture from the Royal Cemetery of Ur, a very famous site excavated in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and a third of the collections from that excavation were at Penn where I was uh, doing my, my graduate studies. And so I had access to a lot of the materials there. And, um, and as I was in a seminar with other, with other students, other grad students, and we were looking at different aspects of the, of the cemetery and I was attacking some of the architecture and things just didn't quite seem to fit quite jibe with some of the the tombs the way that they were being presented mm. and the way that for 70 years they'd been presented and so i dug into with my uh, my master's paper was actually comparing what was published what were in the reports which were very good reports especially for the time period but probably even nowadays um the the leonard woolley had published and uh and some of the earlier uh telegrams that were sent back, some of the earlier field reports that were never really published, their field notebooks. And I found all sorts of discrepancies between what came out at the very end of it and what was there early. Now, this isn't data in the way that we're talking about it in in digital archaeology, whatever that Mm -hmm. term might be. But um, it's not data and certainly the way that's intended in this article. Uh, But it does kind of highlight the value of being able to go back at less processed information, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that's something that we generally in our field don't really do very often. We want to go to the reports, a summary, and we assume that, you know, even when there are fights in the field and there are plenty of fights in the field, we assume that there's a reasonable amount of competence. And then it's only when you think that there's some incompetence that you might want to go back <laughs> and reexamine the, the actual data set. Um, yeah. But that's also doing a disservice, I think, to a lot of data that have been collected already. Yeah, so um, you know, it's it's kind of this. It's where we go first, exactly. And I think you're totally right in that. Um, you know, our assumption that the analysis that we're reading, whether it's in a report or an article or whatever, uh, is accurate—an accurate representation or interpretation of the data. I think that's just laziness, honestly. Uh, you know, we want to believe that, but then on the other hand, you get archaeologists, you know, a few beers in them and they're like, oh, that guy's, you know, a total whack job. Like I would never listen to anything he says, but you know, if you go research <laughs> reports and pull those reports, like, oh yeah, okay. I'm going to include this in my report then, you know, because that's, uh, you know, that's the truth. That's where it's at. Well, you do have to start someplace. Well, you do, you do, but it, that that's the point is, you know, read their analysis and then you know, and then be, have a, have a chance to look at the primary data and see if you could see if you agree with it, you know, because yeah. a, a lot of times archaeology is interpretation, as we all know, and somebody's biases are going to cause them to interpret something differently than, say, you would. Not that you're going to interpret it right or they're going to interpret it right or one of you is wrong. Maybe both are right. But either way, the same 10 people could look at the same data sets and come up with 10 different conclusions as to what they think is going on there. Um, based on their training, based on their experiences and, you know, and what have you. So, you know, another thing you brought up that I want to make sure we get into this first segment is the term digital archaeology. It's in the title of this article. And mm -hmm. man, I really think we need to get away from the term digital archaeology because it makes it sound like it, it, in the in the way that they're using it here, it doesn't make any sense to me. If I was going to talk about digital archaeology in the in the frame of like, you know, ground penetrating radar or, you know, drone surveys or some sort of equipment that's actually generating data in the field, then I might see that as digital archaeology. But in the sense that they're using it, they're using it to refer to data that's stored electronically. But I think it's just archaeology. You know, saying digital archaeology takes it away from archaeology and it makes people think, oh, well, I'm not a digital archaeologist, so I'm going to skip right past this issue. You know, I'm not going yeah. to read these articles because I'm not a digital archaeologist. But literally every archaeologist on the planet is a digital archaeologist in the way that they're using the term here. So yeah. I think we need to start separating the fact that digital archaeology is not archaeology. Digital archaeology is archaeology and we're all digital archaeologists. That was the first thing I, I saw just right in the title of the article, and I had to write something down about it. <laughs> yeah, even the most technophobic archaeologist right now is using Word to write their reports, you know? For sure. Yeah. And yeah, we're all doing it it's to some degree or another. We're all using computer technologies mm -hmm. for, uh, for recording, for doing analysis, for writing up our analyses, for storing our, uh, our finds, whatever, uh, or the records mm -hmm. of our finds, that is. Um, and, and you know it, the the digital archaeology. I hadn't. It didn't really stick out at me until you brought that up. Um, it's here in our show notes, and uh, and to me, it was kind of echoing a little bit that discussion back that we had back in episode seventy eight about digital eth and virtual ethics in archaeology. Mm -hmm. And I thought at the time I didn't express it particularly clearly, but it was kind of um, what what about doing something on a computer makes it fundamentally different than doing it in the first place why why right. digital and virtual ethics in archaeology as opposed to just 
ethics and archaeology, you know, right. and this here, digital archaeology versus archaeology. And it's, it's prioritizing the tool set in a way that probably isn't warranted, I think, anymore. Mm-hmm. May have been 20 years ago, but certainly not anymore. No, that's absolutely right. Um, it, it's uh, it's interesting, the parallels there. And I think, I think as we move forward into the future, especially with younger generations that are doing everything digitally, they're not going to make that distinction. You know, no. not, there's not going to be a distinction between digital archaeology and archaeology and digital ethics and, and you know, what, regular ethics, <laughs> however you say that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So some other stuff from the from the beginning of the article here, um, I think something that I'm glad one of the uh, one of the contributors brought up was about how most reports are um, are stored as PDFs and that PDFs are not data. Do you know how many times I say PDFs are not data? I recorded a webinar today where I said the phrase PDFs are not data. And it's just, it's it's appalling to me how many people think PDFs are data. It's like, well, it's OCR, you can search it. Okay, but it's not data. It's not data yeah. until you put it into tables with columns and you know rows and it's something i can search and it's unbiased it's it's not clouded by you know a bunch of verbs and stuff it's just data it's just here's the data there's no analysis here you go and that's not a pdf so yeah and and i'm glad they made that distinction because it's it's infuriating when people talk about that it's like well saved it as this it's like okay that's great but it's useless thanks um yeah, well, even if somebody's publishing tables of, of data in their PDF, <laughs> that's the the least useful way of getting yeah. those data back into some other format because right. you basically have to copy and paste or transcribe or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's locked. It's static. And PDFs, as much as I love them as, as document forms, I always think of them as, as an end, as a publication end mm-hmm. uh, that everything else leads into. And so if you have a table that you're including in your PDF, I sure hope you've got a CSV or an Excel file or a database file of those same data that you could right. then share in a different format that somebody else could take and you know run numbers on without having to go and uh, and retype out of that PDF. Yeah. That there's no advantage to that versus you know having something published on paper. Okay, well, speaking of data, uh, when we get back from the break, we're going to talk about one of the one of the primary issues with data, really, the usability of data, archive data, which is citing data, something I hadn't really thought about until I read it in this article, hmm. um, but it totally makes sense. So let's take a break. And when we come back on the other side, we'll, we'll get into that topic. Back in a second. Are you interested in history or knitting? Well, we are too. I'm Heather Boyd. And I'm Rachel Roden. And we have a new podcast called Historical Yarns that brings the two together. Each season, we'll have six episodes where we dive into the history of a knitting technique and knit a project designed by one of us using that technique. So join us for season one on August 31st, 2018 here on arcpodnet.com historical yarns. Happy knitting! This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.archpodnet.com members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. 
So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to Archaeotech Podcast, episode 83. And we are talking about the usability of archive data based on uh, an article, actually several articles, an entire issue, the May issue of the SAA's Advances in Archaeological Practice. This article is called Data Beyond the Archive in Digital Archaeology by Sarah and Eric Kanza of Open Context. And I say open context because what we mentioned at before the last break is we're going to talk about citing data, something I, I honestly hadn't thought of, probably because I'm a serum archaeologist. Um, academics deal with this a lot more. But um, one of the things that they bring up in one of the articles that Eric and, and Sarah break down in this uh, in this summary article is about citing data and how most people don't use it. A lot of people will cite literature, they'll cite reports, they'll cite books, they'll cite articles, things like that, but they don't actually cite data points um, or sets of data or something like that. And and there's probably a few reasons for that. Well, one of the reasons is the data is not stored in a way that you can actually cite it. I can't mm-hmm. cite a CD in a file cabinet at the BLM, right? I mean, I can cite the report and hopefully that CD is there, but I can't cite that CD or better yet, a particular file on that CD. There's just no method for that. Um, and that's one of the things that Open Context and I think some of these others have possibly TDAR. I know Open Context is doing it, so I'm not going to quote the rest of them and say they're doing it, but individual pieces of information in Open Context actually have their own persistent um, identifier, their DOI, uh, their URL. So I can cite, can take that URL and I can give that to someone. And no matter what changes back there, like if somebody comes in and updates the data, does something to it, that URL is always going to point to that one location. So I can cite that. And as long as Open Context is still funded and they haven't gone mm-hmm. offline, then it will be available as a piece of data that I can cite. Now, obviously, the one catch here is uh, accessibility. A lot of the open context stuff is open. It's open for a reason because they're they're very well known sites. Um, you know, they're academic sites that people are working on. They're not like CRM sites that are typically hidden, you know, and and stuff like that. And you can just click on this thing and be taken to this piece of data. Um, I don't know if they have or if they're working on access rights for certain data. Um, I don't know if they've gotten there or if they're even thinking about doing that yet. But either way this is how you would cite data. And there's other ways to store data in which you can you can cite it. There's there's other people that are doing that, but this is what we're talking about. And I think we need to move to this. We definitely need to move this for CRM um, in a way that, you know, so we can so we can cite particular data sets. Like I'd love to be able to cite just a, a carbon 14 um, sample, you know, analysis results or something like that, rather than an entire, art, entire report. Like if I cite an 800 page report, somebody's going to go through and have to figure out what the hell I was talking about when I cited that, even if I give them a bridge of page numbers or something. But if I can just cite the data, like the the carbon-14 sample data, for example, or, you know, a list of projectile points found in a certain region, if I can just cite that, I feel like it takes the bias of the entire report out of the equation. And now I'm just citing that piece of data and using it for my report. If I cite the entire report, even if I specify a page number, I feel like I'm still citing that report. You know what I mean? And I like the fact that I can cite data rather than the entire thing. So I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I uh, I also struck by this because it's not something I'd specifically thought of before. Again, back to that, um, back to what my example earlier about the uh, the Royal Cemetery of Ur. Uh, I've been working with my dissertation advisor. We're just uh, finally getting together the publication that's going to go out uh, later this year, um, rehashing for the umpteenth time this uh, one particular aspect of that of that study of mine and. Um, and so when I first did the project, 
he had made some very, you know, this is in the late nineties. So the scanning that he had available wasn't particularly good. I think he took some photocopies of, uh, of Leonard Woolley's field notebooks. And, uh, and then I scanned those. And so they were really cruddy. Well, since then the British museum has had, um, has had all the notebooks photographed, scanned very high quality and they're online, uh, with stable URLs. So now mm. the citation in this article that we write that we're writing when well, we want to cite something in those notebooks we don't have to include a picture of it we don't have to worry about that we can just cite directly the, the stable url uh, so that's kind of kind of along the same line so it was something that was bouncing around in the back of my head but yeah if i wanted to cite like you said you know the the carbon dates from a particular site using site and site that's always a problem um <laughs> <laughs> if i wanted to cite uh, the carbon dates from a particular archaeological site excavation. Um, yeah, I, I, there isn't an established way to do so. There is through something mm -hmm. like Open Context, provided that those data sets have been uploaded to Open Context, and so that's great that they're that they're providing that. I, what it really started to think about though, when it when this came up, is oh my god, data aren't necessarily even static. I mean, it's one thing to cite you know all the whatever potsherds or faunal fragments of you know, bone, animal bones from a particular site at the end of the project. But what happens if, if you're trying to look at things that are works in progress? So say, you know, again, come from the, uh, the academic side of archaeology, you know, some of these projects go on decades. Now, say somebody three years into a multi-year project does a report on the faunal, a faunal analysis and they use what they've excavated up to that point, uh, and you wanted to, and you know, say that that data set is uploaded. What they've done after the tenth or the fifteenth year of the project, that data set is going to be significantly different than it was after those first three years, or potentially right. could be significantly different. So I started to worry actually thinking about this problem of another level of it, not just the the fact of how do you cite data, but how do you cite data at a particular point in time, a particular iteration mm. of the data. And that got me thinking about another project, <laughs> not one that I have any involvement in, but uh, an archaeologist I know here at NYU uh, has published his data sets because uh, he's a very heavy R user. And he's published his data sets through GitHub. Hmm. <laughs> so if you nice. want access to CSVs, you can just go and it's open access and you can go and pull them directly from GitHub. If you have corrections to make, you could resubmit them into into uh, through Git into that repository. And so then anybody else that has access to that repository can get the updated versions. Mm -hmm. uh, Git is a version control system mostly used for, for software development, has a versioning. So there would be a way, you know, if I wanted to cite a data set from you know after the third year of excavation as opposed to at the end of the project 15 years later uh if those data were in some kind of version control system like git i could cite that specific version of the data now i don't know that open context is doing this and so maybe we want to talk to eric to see if uh, eric and sarah to see if they have any uh, uh, see any value in doing such a thing but to me it seems like being able to really drill into subsets of the data or at least temporal subsets versions of it um would also be a useful thing to do so th this is you know i really went off the rails thinking about this but that was the exciting <laughs> thing about just looking at this argument again uh, this article is that uh you know these are people that, that work with this day in day out and they think about it heavily and when you hear people that think about something heavily discuss what they're discussing what they're thinking about what they're working with uh yeah, the, 
the, the, the, the synapses just start firing. <laughs> there are yeah. lots of different ways you can take it. No, I, I see that that's incredibly valuable because um, I use it as an example. You know, this this huge project I did three years ago where every day we came in, just our, our raw data without doing anything, even our, our site, um, just our site record data um, uh-huh. and, our, and our projectile points, our glass cans, you know, all that stuff. Um, it got exported from our application that we were using as a CSV file. And I would take that CSV file from that one site or from that one project, basically, um, let's say site record data. I would take that CSV file from that one tablet and I would add it to the master CSV file. So at the very end, I had one CSV file that had like 300 rows in it that each row represented a site with like, I don't know, something like uh, 120 columns or something like that. So if somebody had, let, let's say I was publishing that, let's say this was a multi-year academic project and not a CRM project where we publish our results at the end. Like you're saying, if I'm citing this table, you know, two years in, and that's the data that I'm using to cite and and respond to myself, I don't want somebody in 15 years to go back and follow that citation and find out that there was 10 years of additional data that maybe changed what I would have thought, you know, that that table was added to or, you know, something exactly like what you're saying. I I would want them to know that, no, I cited it when it was at this point. Mm -hmm. So... Don't call me a bad archaeologist because I didn't see this 10 years of additional data. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see, we didn't excavate the one pit that changed everything. That changed everything. Right, right. So, yeah, you're totally right. I don't know if Open Context is doing that. Um, and I don't even know if, if you can, I don't even know if you can cite data in that way on Open Context because I know they have ways to, you know, put up artifacts and all these other things individually. But I don't know if I can cite, if I can even upload like a table of data and have that be a thing with a persistent link, you know what I mean? And then and then is that changeable? And if it is, do they do version control? And if it's not changeable, at what point do I say this is locked down and you know, you don't have any future way to change that? Anyway, one thing that the article mentioned um, as well, which I thought was interesting, was that people in the UK, probably because they have, I think, better, more popular systems for this, are actually more likely to deposit data in a digital repository rather than also cite it, which I think was an interesting comment. So they're okay saying, here, take my data. But then when they go write up a report or they go do some more analysis, they're not going back to that repository that they know they put information in and actually pulling other people's information out of it. That's an that's an interesting problem to have. Yeah, no, it's uh, I wouldn't have expected it. But then when I think about it, I do expect it. And again, I think this gets to some of the conservatives in the field. It's brought up that... Um, uh, in the article here, in the summary, is that uh, there, there seems to be uh, a reticence uh, amongst, especially senior scholars, of using somebody else's data sets, and mm-hmm. that that bias that bias uh, is picked up by their students, and so their students also are pretty uncomfortable using somebody else's data set, even if it's been published in a way that's you know open access, and uh, and that made me think of some of the other changes that we've had in our field, you know, so. Uh, we complain a lot that, um, well, complain a lot, that might not be the right word, but we, we, we fret a lot in the field about excavation. You know, it's what we, most of us love doing, uh, but it's also, it's inherently destructive. And a lot of very good concern is, well, well why are you digging something new when there's plenty of old stuff that could be studied in the, the collections of the local museum? And that's true. And everybody mm-hmm. pretty well acknowledges, well, that's true. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of pushback against uh, against using somebody else's 
collections. You know, some of them might just be methodological. Some of it might be the, the biases that we bring in about uh, you know what's really important work and what's just doing something that any old student could do. Uh, mm-hmm. Assuming you know the, the 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 implication there being that a student's work is less valuable than you know an established scholar's work. Right. And also the difference between excavation and survey. And on that, there definitely has been a sea change over the last. 10, 15 years, at least with Middle Eastern archaeology, of mm-hmm. value of doing survey without any excavation component or with only very limited excavation, as opposed to in the past, if you did survey, it was to find the sites to excavate. You know, and so we do have this generalized understanding in the field that um, that there are other data sets out there other than what you yourself generate through digging. Mm-hmm. But there's still, uh, you know, everybody feels a little, well, not everybody. I shouldn't talk to everybody. But a lot of people <laughs> feel a little odd about using somebody else's data set. And I think that yeah. that's highlighted in that point there. That In the UK, people are perfectly happy to deposit their data, but much less comfortable using somebody else's deposited data. Well, and I, I think that gets back to one of our next major points that we wanted to talk about here, which is training. And uh, because... It, to me, if I'm skeptical about somebody else's work or somebody else in particular or just something that they're doing, it's probably because I don't I don't believe in the training that they had. It's probably because I don't believe in, you know, what school they went to or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying I actually do this, but this is what people do. Like if you say, you know, you went to Harvard, well, you should have gone to Yale, you know. I mean, I don't trust anybody that goes to Harvard. It's that kind of thing. Um, right. And we say the same thing about field schools. We say the same thing about other training. You know, it, it happens across the board in different industries. People are like, oh, you got trained there. Well, we're going to have to retrain you because they're a bunch of idiots. Um, yeah. And that's what it comes down to. And, and field schools, field schools really tend to highlight um, digging skills. They tend to even lab skills, but really the more hands-on types of skills. I mean, they're called field schools. So that kind of makes sense. However, for data to be reusable, and this is one of the points that the article really makes uh, strongly, is that for data to be reusable, it has to be good data. <laughs> it has to be data that you trust in the way it was recorded. The methodology is clearly explained, and and you know the parameters are right there. Everything that you need to know about how the data were collected is right there. And then you know if we teach people in field schools to, to collect data properly and to create databases for projects and to know how to structure those databases, you know how to do relate relational tables. I think that's just as important as how to dig a straight wall in a in an excavation unit. You know how to how to record a feature, how to do those things. It doesn't matter if you know how to do those things if you don't know how to write it down properly so someone else can interpret it and understand it and then, you know, use the data for another purpose. If 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 that's if you can't do that, all the work you just did is completely useless um, as far as I'm concerned. And we don't we because this article is pointing out, we no longer just look at the the conclusions of a report which is maybe what we did 30 years ago. You know, we would just say, "Oh, they dug this up. What did they find?" Here's the conclusions. Here's what their analysis was. But now we want to dig into it because there's other stuff we can do. You know, there's other analysis we can do. So I don't know. Training is a huge issue. And um, and it's probably not just field schools, is it? No, it's probably not just field schools. Uh, I should, again, talk to some of my uh, friends who teach in the digital humanities. But I also wonder how much uh, the digital humanities courses emphasize this whole notion of date, data management. You know, if it's just analysis and presentation or if they're also really getting into the meat of you know how you collect your data, how you 
mm-hmm. organize it, how you store it, and how you disseminate it. Um, I I would be surprised if they're not doing this, but honestly, in any of the I go to in New York City, I go to a number of digital humanities workshops and things, and I don't think I've ever seen anybody discuss those aspects of of, uh, of digital humanities. Right. And so that would be analogous to the field schools. And I was also thinking as you were talking about uh, about teaching data management through field schools as a as a specific skill set. Well, you know, we as archaeologists we have to l- learn a lot of things, and you know, so I might know a little bit of funnel analysis. I know enough to know that I can't do it myself. <laughs> so if I if I need the animal bones on a site uh, analyzed, I'm I'm hiring somebody else to do it. Um, That's right. You know, and the same goes for the lithics. Same goes for you know a hundred different subfields. So maybe maybe I don't think that you know my my background is such that I don't think the data management is particularly difficult. I think that it's something that we should all be able to think. But that's the way that I have grown up dealing with computers and data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so for other people, it might just be one too many skills to do. But at least if they have the the understanding, the recognition that they themselves can't do this properly, get somebody on the project yeah. that can. Right, and work through them for that part of it, just like you'd work through your palynologist to look at the uh, at, at pollen grains rather than trying mm-hmm. to do it yourself. Yeah, I I look at it as um, in a very similar way. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. If there's a skill that you don't have, um, there's no sense in you learning something that's incredibly complex right now, unless you really want to do that. But hire somebody that can actually do the job correctly and set things up correctly, because you'll you'll appreciate it later on. Um, I I look at the future of this skill, though, the same way I look at, you know, other things. Like if you're on the East Coast, you probably know ceramics fairly well, you know, whether it's historic or prehistoric ceramics. There's lots of ceramics out there. If you're on the West Coast, you probably know lithics really well. You probably know projectile points. Um, You know, if you're in Nevada, you probably know mining features really well. Um, But that's that's a skill that a lot of people out here have because we need it all the time. So I think that digital data creation and management is going to end up being one of those universal skills. Like, you know, if you don't know your way around a trial, you're probably not going to be an archaeologist, right? So I think in in five years or less, I think that's going to have to be the norm. If you don't know your way around a database, you don't even know what that means, and you don't know how to build one and how to manipulate one and how to add data to one, how to collect data to put in it. If you don't know that, then just like if you can't handle a trial, you shouldn't probably be an archaeologist because I think you're doing a disservice to the to the stakeholders, a disservice to history, and a disservice to the data and to your fellow archaeologists and future archaeologists and future scientists if you don't know how to properly not only collect the data but store the data in a way that makes it usable. So that might be a little harsh, yeah. but otherwise, I what's, agree the, with what's the point? <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I feel with it, um, and I, that's why I said my biases are such that, I, that it's second nature to me, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think I'm reasonably good at it. But uh, it's it's not unlike uh, like writing, right? We all have to learn how to right. write as archaeologists, right? It's it's a given that you're going to have to be able to write something reasonably comprehensible to your to your peers, otherwise. It, it, whatever work you're doing is worthless. And there's also that underlying idea with a lot of writing that we get taught in college is that you write to help figure out your ideas, right? You write mm-hmm. not just to, to express what's coming out, you know, on your, on your typewriter, on your keyboard, on your pen, whatever. Uh, you write to formulate the ideas that are going into the process of the writing. You, you, right. you know, so in the same 
I think that's very analogous to being able to to manage your data properly. You you manage your data in order to think about your data. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that they're hand in hand, and that they ought to be not thought of as as different skill sets entirely, but one of the central skill sets of the field. It's probably not there now, and so long as it's probably not there, get a get a specialist. But um, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. It's probably going to go the way yeah. that. In the next few years, everybody's going to be brought along and know at least a mm-hmm. certain baseline minimum of data management. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's the end of this segment. Um, we're going to do our app of the day segment next. I would say, please send us an email, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, or you can find our um, our Twitter handles uh, in the show notes for this podcast. But send us your solutions. You know, are you somebody who had no clue about how to collect data digitally in databases and you learned how? Or did you hire somebody? Um, did you say, listen, I don't understand how to do this and I'm going to hire somebody to do it? Or are you in a position where you're teaching people how to do this? Do you run a field school that's teaching digital um, digital data creation practices and things like that um, or what have you? I'm interested to see what people's solutions are out there. So, all right, well, That's it. Like I said, for this segment, we'll come back in just a few short minutes for the app of the day segment. Back in a second. Are you tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 83, and this is the App of the Day segment. And, you know, I'm going to talk about, uh, I think, a, a, a really cool hiking application next time, but I want a little more time with it. So for now, I'm going to talk about a game for, the for I think, the first time ever. I don't know if I've talked about a game before, but sometimes you just need to take a break from archaeology and play a freaking game, right? So um, especially if you're creating databases and things like that, sometimes you just got to turn off... <laughs> play a game 
And I like games that um, are a little bit uh, challenging from either a mental or dexterity standpoint, um, which is why I like some of the iPhone stuff, because sometimes they're both. And this one that I heard about on another video podcast that I watched, they were doing this whole thing on iOS games. And um, they mentioned this one because it has an Apple TV version, which is ridiculously hard to play with that stupid Apple TV remote. However, they also have an iPhone version. And it's called Piano Tiles 2. Now, I'll warn you right off the bat, this thing is loaded with ads. It's loaded with ads. Like everything you do after it, there'll be an ad. And it might be a mini game that you have to play. It might be some sort of ad for something else that you have to sit through. But it's ads. I ended up, I like this game so much, I ended up paying like $2.99 when it came up one time and said, hey, get rid of all the ads. I was like, not a problem um, because I love playing this. But basically what this is, is um, it's all piano music and some of it is, you know, like modern-ish music converted into piano uh, arrangements, but a lot of it is classical piano and some standards and things like that. Um, but it, the best way I can describe this is Guitar Hero for Piano. Um, it's if you've ever played that, or 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 like Dance Dance Revolution, if you remember that. But basically, these tiles come across that that they correspond. They don't correspond to actual positions of notes, um, so don't get that in your head. But you have to know the rhythm of the song a little bit to be able to hit these accurately and play along with the song kind of you're again, you're not hitting particular notes. You're just hitting these tiles and some of them you got to hold your finger down and drag and, you know, for a longer note and stuff like that. But it just, it speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. And that's what makes it more challenging. And I, I love the music. Um, Canon in D is one of my favorite songs and they've got that on here. And, uh, you know, all the popular ones like for Elise and, you know, uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons and a bunch of Bach tunes and things like that, but then some more obscure stuff as well. And, Again, this is just a, a fun game that'll keep your visual and mental dexterity just going. Um, I, I just got my, uh, I, I got to brag just a little bit. Speaking of visual, I just got my FAA third class medical certificate um, recertified because I'd let it lapse because I'm going to get back into some some flying here in the next month or so. And I found out my vision is 20 over 12.5, which... Uh, is better than 2020, which I was really surprised at because I don't remember it being that good before. I was like, "Does your vision? Can your vision get better as you get older, or was it just not tested properly this time or before?" <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, maybe that helps me when these tiles are going by really fast. But either way, you don't have to spend any money on this game if you don't want to. You just got to sit through the ads. It's a free download. There's a bunch of junk inside here. Whoever coded this, English is not their first language, so there's some weird grammatical things with it. Um, which that's fine. Other people are making apps around the world. I don't care. It's a fun game to play. So if you want something fun, that's a little bit of a time suck. There's no quest. There's no, you know, there's no guns and, and, and monsters to kill. It's just playing fun piano music really fast. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just a good time. I, I don't know. I really enjoy it. And I like the way that it's done. And there's, there's, I think 65, levels initially i think they're adding more and there's three songs per level with a bonus song in between each level so there's a ton of songs you can play um and if you're interested in hearing how some of these go before you play it as a side note i found on spotify there's a piano tiles 2 playlist somebody's already collected all these songs into a piano tiles 2 playlist so you can go listen to them on spotify before you play it here so short and simple first game i've ever um put on here i think but sometimes you just need a game to play there you go. Yeah, especially uh, the phone games, the the ones where you can turn your brain off can be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not totally turn it off, obviously, but the but the ones that you can, sure. it's mostly just moving your thumbs and uh, and kind of yep. zoning out on it for a bit without having to get too cerebral. And that's not that's that what the I like cerebral about this ones one. aren't fun too, but uh, but it's well, yeah. 
And that's what I like about this. You, you're you're getting this classical music, which is shown to stimulate brains anyway, with it with its complexity and the way that it is. And then you're also moving your fingers, you're using your eyes, and it's just you know, it's it's got a lot of elements that that jive for me that I that I like. So. Anyway, what have you got today, Paul? Okay, so I've got one that I've actually had on my phone for a few years now, um, and I fire it up, you know, a couple of times every summer just to see, uh, well, for for its use, really. It's called O Ranger Park Finder, and what it is, it's um, it's iOS and Android. It's free uh, advertising, little banner ad at the bottom. Oh, I guess it has Yamaha. I thought it was only Ford and L.L. Bean, but when you first fire it up, it says you know, so that, that Ford and L.L. Bean are backers of it. It's got a website that uh, oranger.com, that's O-H, Ranger, like you're you know lost in the woods and you're calling for a ranger, I guess, um, uh, that has basically the same functionality. Um, and it lists, for the U.S., it lists uh, national and state parks, and uh, so very simple interface, works really nicely. Uh, I fired it up. It downloaded, you know, I haven't used it since last year. So I fired it up the other day and it downloaded a new data set. So I guess the data behind it must be getting updated. The app itself has not been updated in about two years. <laughs> and nice. it was last designed before Apple went flat and mm. Google went with the material design. So it looks dated and it might be dated so take it with a grain of salt it might not be uh the most up to date but it works without any complaint on my on the latest version of ios on my phone so uh, so i think it's probably still okay um basically it, it pulls up my location you know so i fired up and it found my geolocated me and select things to do is the next button here and it gives me a whole bunch of different icons that i could select uh activity center auditory baseball basketball bicycling camping uh, caving, climbing, on down the list. Um, and then you can select any combination of those ones that you want and give it a, uh, oh, I was going to say give it a, uh, a distance from you, but that's actually not available on here. That's just on the website, which I was looking at earlier. Uh, so you select the different activities and hit find parks and it searches for a bit and it spits back then a list organized by distance uh, of different parks in your area. Uh, so this one I use, you know, the, like I said, I fire it up a couple of times a year. You know, every summer, my son and I are, well, my daughter doesn't actually like camping. But my son and I <laughs> uh, will go out camping. Uh, you know, I've mentioned we go up north of uh, of New York City, up into Brewster. And, uh, and we're right close to Connecticut. And there's kind of a, a path right up here. The Taconic Mountains start just a little north. And then the Berkshires a little north of that. The Catskills are on the other side of the Hudson River. There are a bunch of different parks around, different activities. Uh, the Appalachian Trail runs through here just a few minutes from my house in a few different spots. And uh, so we, we use this. I use this in order to try to find a particular particular mix of uh, of activities in different uh, camping sites mostly um you know so i use it just to get a sense of what's there there are reviews of the sites of the camping sites or the uh, the parks rather uh, mm -hmm. in the app but i don't think i've actually found 
a campsite, a park that has a review. There's a review section there, but there's nothing else in it. Hmm. Uh, but it does allow you to, to drill in. So if you want to try to find some place to go fishing or, or hiking or you know, birding or whatever these different uh, activities, you can just plug it in and, uh, and it's pretty useful that way. And so it's, you know, I use it for recreation, but I could also see CRM archaeologists who want to try to find some place in the area to go camping um, as a you know, not in the you know, home base, uh, could use this pretty easily. So again, uh, entertainment information, uh, maybe utility, but, uh, but again, it's been on my phone for a few years and I, and I use it and, uh, enjoy it. So I think it's something worth taking a look at and we'll see if they do keep on, uh, keep on supporting the data on the back end and keep on updating the app, which again, they haven't done in two years, but mm -hmm. keep on updating to support the next versions of iOS and Android. It's interesting. Um, I just downloaded it and it's interesting that, uh, it hasn't been updated in two years, but it's downloadable because most apps had to, uh, had to fix themselves for the new 64 bit standard that came out last fall. And if they didn't do that, then they are not usable typically in iOS 11. So it's interesting yeah. that they must have already been at that standard for some reason. They must Maybe have. That, yeah. Otherwise, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. Or even if, um, yeah, there, there was while there were, uh, it would say this may make your phone run more slowly. Uh -huh. I never got that with this. A and you would expect it because, like I said, it looks very old fashioned as far as iOS apps go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely got that. Uh, the old icons and things like that, like you said, they're not the new flat design. Either way, I'm excited to check it out because we got tons of parks and campgrounds and things like that around here. And uh, in fact, we were just driving around the other day looking for some because we're taking our cadets out for the Civil Air Patrol and we were trying to find a good campground to go do like a summer um, summer bivouac, we call it, um, where we just spend like three days out and uh, try to find a good campground for that because it's nice taking them in the middle of nowhere. But these cadets, they get a little weird early on you know young when they don't have like bathrooms and stuff <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just go to a campground and then we'll figure out the rest of it to do but um anyway yeah i'm gonna check this out too myself so okay well we'll have Good. links to both of those in the show notes and uh yeah um i think that's about it i do want to try to get eric and or sarah um cons on i'd love to get them both on to talk about some of this data stuff and 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 really kind of a refresh about open context as well and the new things they're doing because we talked to open context one of our first well, a long time ago i should say a couple of years ago we talked to open context um, we talked to eric and we just need a we need an update on what's going on with open context and to probably promote it a little more for them and 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 get people saving their data so well, they're doing really good work, and they're and they're very mm -hmm. active, getting around to different conferences, to different uh, yeah. to different seminars, different places. Um, you know, I've seen them here in New York, but they're based out in San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, and uh, you know, they, they're doing good work, and they obviously they like I said at the start, they know a lot more about this than I could ever hope to. So it'd be <laughs> nice to you know get schooled by them. Yeah, well that that goes back to you know recognizing our own limitations because me too, I, I talk to these guys and I'm like, it's just like my eyes are glossing over, but I want to understand it. And I want to know, I don't think I need to know as deeply as they do about this, you know, archiving data and stuff like that. But I need to know enough as a data creator so I can give them information that's actually going to be usable, you know, if I'm going right. to do that. And that's, that's where it really comes in for most of us is we don't have to get into the nuts and bolts. We don't have to get into all these crazy complexities, but we have to know enough to, we, to know how to give them good stuff so they can use it. So other people can use it. So Anyway, I think that's all I've got. Any uh, any last remarks, Paul? 
No, no. Like I said, I'm very interested in the rest of the articles here in this and uh, have to spend a little quality time with them. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, check out all the links in the show notes for this article and, uh, and for the apps that we had. And we want to see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.